This is the Mathematics Education Podcast from MathEdPodcast.com. Welcome to the Math Ed Podcast. My name is Sam Otten from the University of Missouri. There is a powerful and long-standing cultural assumption that mathematics is a predominantly male and predominantly white subject. But recently, that assumption has been challenged by an increasing number of scholars who have studied people's mathematical experiences with regard to different races and genders. But can we really get a full account of mathematical experiences by looking just at race or gender? Perhaps there is a need for intersectionality in mathematics education research, and that's our topic for this episode. My guest is Luis Leva, who's an assistant professor of mathematics education in the Department of Teaching and Learning at Vanderbilt University. Luis, thanks so much for being here. Oh, it's a pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. The focus of our conversation is going to be Luis's new article in the Journal of Urban Mathematics Education, an intersectional analysis of Latino-Latina college women's counter stories in mathematics. And a great thing about the Journal of Urban Mathematics Education is that all of their articles are freely available, so people can go and grab this article right now. Um, And I'll have a link in the show notes to that. But, Luis, I know you've listened to the podcast, so you know that I first like to put people on the map in terms of their academic background. So I wanted to ask you where you went to grad school and whom you worked with there. I went to graduate school uh, at Rutgers University, and I worked under the advisement of Dr. Dan Beatty. Oh, great, who has also done important work in some of this topic that I've been describing. So what was it that led you personally to be interested in the experiences of Latina college students who are pursuing STEM careers? Well, prior to my faculty appointment, I held six years of professional experience in higher education, working as a coordinator and math instructor for support programs to increase retention and representation among women and racially minoritized individuals in STEM, or science, technology, engineering, and mathematics. So this included living learning communities and residential summer bridge programs, where I observed how students engaged in different practices to be successful in their undergraduate math education, or STEM more broadly, such as forming their own study groups, this idea of maybe teaching themselves some of the content after class. So these were some of the more academic practices that they would engage in, but I also observed in working in these programs, as well as in my own experiences as a a mathematics major, how marginalized students often engage in practices that are more social in nature to navigate ideas of who is deemed more mathematically able and feelings of underrepresentation in undergraduate STEM education. Mm. So some of those strategies that I observed in my professional practice in higher ed piqued my interest to better understand the lived experiences of undergraduate student populations marginalized at different intersections of their social identities, such as gender and race, in pursuing STEM majors. That way, we can foreground these students' voices and learn from their narratives to enhance teaching in undergraduate STEM classrooms, as well as services that that are provided through STEM support initiatives for students to be more socially inclusive and affirming. So in order to shed light on the variation of lived experiences of a single marginalized student population in mathematics, the analysis presented in the article in the Journal of Urban Mathematics Education focused on the experiences of two Latino women in their first year of pursuing STEM majors at a four-year university. These women made up one subset of participants from this study, as Latino men and African-American women and men also were recruited as participants in the project. 
The article's focus on the Latino college women's experiences is important considering how there remains room in the math education literature to learn from the voices of historically marginalized women of color pursuing mathematics and other math intensive areas in STEM. Mm-hmm. So we're going to hear some of those stories from two Latina college students. But as I mentioned at the beginning of the episode, there's this idea of bringing an intersectional approach. And I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about what intersectionality means to you and why was it important that you brought intersectionality um, into bear for this study? Sure. It was important to bring an intersectional perspective to the research study in order to further nuance our understandings of mathematics as a socially exclusionary space that often largely attends to a single dimension of individual social identities such as gender or race. So in order to do this, I drew on critical race and black feminist legal scholar Kimberly Crenshaw's intersectionality theory to be able to attend to the interplay of different vectors of the Latina women's social identities such as gender, race, class, and generational status, and how that uniquely shaped their mathematics experiences. This intersectional perspective allowed me to detail the complex richness of what it meant for each participant to be a Latina woman in mathematics, as well as her strategies for successfully navigating mathematics as a socially exclusionary space. Um, So attending to the intersectionality of the participants' mathematics experiences allowed for considerations of how cultural expectations for women and financial situations at home shaped their narratives in ways that focusing only on gender or race might have left implicit or unexplored in the analysis. Yeah, so when we're talking about employing a framework or taking a perspective in a study, we always talk about how it's going to foreground some things and background other things or bring some things into focus and maybe miss out on other things. So would you say with the intersectional perspective, you were just able to get a fuller picture or perspective on these individuals' experiences? And if it hadn't been an intersectional perspective, you would have been kind of foregrounding a certain thing and missing a lot of other things? Right. So I think that with an intersectional perspective, it allowed me to kind of engage um, in looking in a, a little bit more deeply into the variation in their experiences as Latino college women, right? So because these were the two participants, what I tried to do intentionally is try to figure out if there are some commonalities in their experiences, what is similar, but also what's different, and how can we learn from those differences in the strategies that they engaged with and in the encounters that they had as mathematics students. Mm-hmm. So tell us a little bit about the participants in your study and then also the setting. You mentioned they're starting their STEM career, you know, in terms of majoring in it uh, at college. Sure. The Latino college women participants who were the focus of the analysis in the article were Lauren and Tracy. At the time of the study, they were both in their first year of undergraduate study at a large, predominantly white four-year university in the northeastern section of the United States. Both participants were members of a STEM support program at the university aimed to increase retention and success among women and racially minoritized students in STEM. Both Latina women, Lauren and Tracy, had intentions of completing math-intensive STEM majors. And when I say math-intensive, I'm referring to majors that required at least two semesters of calculus according to the university's curriculum. Mm -hmm. Uh, Lauren was a prospective computer science major who graduated from a predominantly white high school and was undecided of her career pathway after college. And Tracy was a prospective mathematics and theater arts major who graduated from a predominantly Latino high school and planned to pursue a career as a high school mathematics teacher. And overall, your article in the Journal of Urban Mathematics Education deals with counter stories. 
So first of all, what are counter stories for people who maybe haven't heard of this idea before? And then what are some of the stories that are countered by Lauren and Tracy? Sure, it's a great question. So the notion of a counter story comes from the critical race literature. Uh, it's a methodology and in the words of critical race scholars Danny Solorsano and Tara Yoso uh, for, quote, telling the stories of people whose experiences are often not told, particularly those who are at the margins of society, end quote. So counter stories are analytically constructed to explore how individuals challenge stories, as you said, or these dominant discourses about marginalized groups to which they belong. At the same time, counter stories can be what are considered unheard narratives in which individuals do not necessarily counter these discourses, but yet still offer insight into strategies of survival, empowerment, and resistance in society and in an education in this particular case. In this article, I presented Lauren's and Tracy's counter stories as two cases of the intersectionalities of experiences among Latino college women who navigated mathematics as a socially exclusionary space during high school and at the university. Their counter stories were constructed to detail institutional and interpersonal contexts in which Lauren and Tracy encountered discourses of mathematical ability and STEM higher education. Their counter stories also described success-oriented beliefs and strategies that the participants adopted in negotiating their identities as Latina women in mathematics with these discourses. The cross-case analysis presented in the article explores the variation in how Lauren and Tracy engaged with four dominant discourses across her counter stories. And these four discourses included mathematics ability is innate, women and Latinas are not good at mathematics, Latina women are underrepresented in STEM, and Latina women become young mothers and wives instead of pursuing college or pursuing higher education. Yeah, and with those stories, some of those stories might be, you know, we could argue about whether they're factually accurate or inaccurate, but really that's not the point about whether they are true or false stories. What's important is just that they are dominant stories, that there is this kind of undercurrent that these stories are running through STEM communities, mathematics classrooms, college communities, all that stuff. And the fact that the stories exist mean that we can have a counter story to them. That's exactly right. And I think that unfortunately we hear these stories or these discourses time and time again, and unfortunately they still exist. But I think that with an intersectional perspective that was laid into the project, we begin to kind of see how the variation, how individuals in this particular case, how, the, how these Latino college women engaged with these discourses in their own ways and in ways that mapped on to being successful with mathematics during their high school and college year. I'm speaking with Luis Leva from Vanderbilt University about his article, An Intersectional Analysis of Latino-Latina College Women's Counter Stories in Mathematics. So now getting into what you found, um, I wa was wondering if you could just summarize, um, maybe starting with Lauren's counter story. Sure. One way to kind of do this is to think about maybe one or two of those discourses that I mentioned that kind of came out in each of their counter stories and then maybe conclude with an overview looking across both of those counter stories. Sounds good. Uh, so in particular for Lauren's counter stories, her counter story really points to the important role that mathematics teaching can play in disrupting discourses of innate mathematical ability that are often gendered and racialized. She attributed her success as a high school mathematics student to the support and quality of instruction from teachers that runs counter to this, this, her views of seeing mathematics ability as being innate. College calculus was a turning point in Lauren's mathematics experience as she was not able to connect with her professor's teaching and thus brought her to fear 
becoming overwhelmed with mathematics and constantly having to teach herself the content, which she didn't have to do during her high school years. This experience brought Lauren to reconsider a computer science major, not because she was no longer interested in mathematics, but because she was less interested in teaching herself, and she made that very clear in our time together. In this article, I discuss how, when the discourse of innate mathematical ability, which is framed by gender-blind and color-blind ideologies, is coupled with systemic issues of achievement and underrepresentation in, in mathematics and in STEM more broadly, these issues come to then be explained as marginalized groups like Latina women being inherently deficient of potential to be mathematically successful. And then how does Tracy's counter story, you know, relate to Lauren's? There are some similarities, but some differences. And again, part of what you were trying to do was give them each their own story and recognize their own experience. So let's hear a little bit about Tracy as well. Sure. So in thinking about Lauren's counter story, I tried to focus to capture a little bit of her engagement with the discourse of innate mathematical ability. And giving a little bit of a brief insight into Tracy's counter story, I wanted to kind of focus more on this discourse of women and Latinos not being good at mathematics or Latinos being underrepresented in STEM. Tracy's counter story really captures how institutional contexts shape the nature of, of discourses of mathematical ability in STEM higher education that she encountered. Uh, she described how discourses of women not being good at mathematics was were more salient in her experience during high school than college. Uh, attending a predominantly Latino high school, she recalled engaging in gender battles, as she called, with mm. boys in her AP Calculus class mm -hmm. to disprove the boys' claims that they were smarter and better at mathematics than the girls. Race, however, was more salient in Tracy's mathematics experience during college when she received surprise reactions from others about pursuing a mathematics major and then proceeding to ask about her ethnicity and her performance as a mathematics student. So in all of this, you know, she kind of engaged with these kind of gender discourses in high school and then these more racialized experiences during her first year at the university. But throughout these experiences, she, Tracy discussed how in navigating and making meaning of such moments, she received social support and encouragement through a sustained network of fellow Latino women from her AP Calculus class who ended up enrolling in the same university as her. She describes how this collective was socially affirming through her peers' shared understandings of what it means to be a Latina woman and having that common goal of pursuing STEM higher education. Well, that's kind of interesting, too. Uh, I mean, first of all, it's interesting that there was kind of the shift in emphasis from gender in high school to then more race in college, but it's also interesting about this idea of having the peer support group around because uh, at my university, the University of Missouri, we're making concrete efforts to try to increase diversity, particularly amongst faculty. We already have a you know fairly diverse student body, but the faculty is not as diverse as the student population. And as we're trying to make efforts toward increasing diversity, there are these explicit conversations about bringing people in who will have the support group around them, like bringing in faculty of color with other faculty of color so that they can support one another and not become just kind of a lone wolf in a department of lots of other white people or other white faculty. So it's interesting to hear this too at the student level, like as for a freshman in a major, how important it was to have those peers as well. Yeah, and in, in both in Lauren's and Tracy's experiences, they talked about how seeing someone who looked like them in the faculty, whether it was in, uh, particularly in, in high school faculty members, was particularly important for them because it allowed them, the same way that she kind of said that she connected, uh, that Tracy connected with fellow Latina women who were part of her support network, 
they also talked about how being able to kind of see someone who is a mathematics teacher who looks like them allows them to kind of have a sense that they have a shared understanding of the experiences that, that they would be going through and the discourses that they would be managing mm-hmm. in pursuing mathematics. So I think one of the, in thinking about, about this initiative to be able to increase faculty diversity, I think that's interesting because one, when I think about mathematics, oftentimes when we think about receiving a mathematics teacher certification, you have to complete a mathematics major most of the time. Mm-hmm. So if we're losing folks in undergraduate mathematics and we're, and we're not kind of increasing our diversity in terms of who's graduating as a mathematics major, then we're also losing out mm-hmm. on diversifying the P-12 STEM teaching force, right? Yeah. So I think it's really important for us to be able to increase uh, retention and success in the STEM pipeline and in being able to increase diversity in terms of uh, folks who are majoring in mathematics. But I think that that also lends itself into increasing diversity in our STEM teaching force, which played such a critical role for both of these Latino college women and their experiences. Mm-hmm. And are there any things that you particularly notice or that stand out to you when you look across Lauren and Tracy's cases rather than at each of them individually? Well, Lauren and Tracy both invoke this discourse of Latina women becoming young mothers and wives instead of pursuing higher education. Both of them saw this as reflecting traditional cultural values of a gender division of labor that's often taken up in Latina households. Uh, Lauren reflected on how her family stood apart from other Latina families who pushed their daughters to become young mothers or wives. But instead, her family, she saw her family encouraging her to kind of break that tradition by going to college and thus providing her with the motivation that she feels more Latino girls should receive to feel as though they can do mathematics and have a future in STEM. Uh, Lauren then kind of saw herself as being a role model to younger generations, including family members, as a fellow Latino successful in STEM. But Tracy... Tracy discussed how her network with fellow Latino girls allowed them to support one another in negotiating gendered cultural expectations of marriage and motherhood with her pursuits of STEM higher education. She saw her mother as a frame of reference of culture catching up to a Latina woman, which motivated her to pick up where her mother left off in becoming a mathematics teacher. By carrying on her mom's legacy or her mother's legacy, Tracy saw herself giving back to her hometown as a mathematics teacher. So Latino girls are encouraged to, to kind of beat the culture and not fall victim to discourses that might steer them away from mathematics. So kind of looking across these counter stories, we see that Lauren's and Tracy's counter stories capture this sense of, of what's called familismo in the literature. And by familismo, it's this, a sense of loyalty and responsibility to the Latino family unit that played a critical role in how they resisted this gendered cultural discourse such that their mathematics success and STEM higher education pursuits mapped on to better features for their families and younger generations of Latino women. So having these counter stories of Lauren and Tracy, and now you know, you've shared this with the field to be able to hear those counter stories, what is it that you're hoping the field of mathematics education research or maybe mathematics education teaching, what do you hope that we take from these two cases? Well, I hope one of the major takeaways from the two cases presented in the article is beginning to advance considerations of increasing educational equity for Latino women and other marginalized groups in mathematics, but particularly during the high school to college transition Mm -hmm. experience. 
if you really look at these ex the experiences detailed in, in this piece, Lauren and Tracy talk about experiencing a shift in the nature of mathematics instruction upon entering the university. In this shift, they kind of felt as though just they were disconnected from some of the pedagogical approaches that were uh, adopted in the classroom, but also having minimal opportunities to build academically and socially supportive relationships with faculty members. And these relationships were so were very critical to their success, their mathematics success during high school. So considering how this shift brought both Latino women to begin to reconsider their STEM majors, this study really highlights the importance of beginning to increase marginalized students' access to meaningful but as also socially affirming instruction and learning opportunities across undergraduate mathematics classrooms. In addition to, to that takeaway, I also think you mentioned this briefly before in thinking about your current situation in the University of Missouri, mm -hmm. um, about how we are supporting students to be able to sustain peer networks that they might have had prior to college, so that way they can sustain those networks into their college years. Mm -hmm. And if that's not possible, how institutions of higher education can support students in rebuilding some of those very important networks during their college years. Yeah. Um, oftentimes, as students entered in their first year at the university, they often don't have the lucky opportunity that Tracy had, where some of her students from her AP Calculus classroom were able to join her in her first year at the university. Other students don't have that opportunity, so really these students are left are left with the responsibility of having to rebuild these networks that are so important in their experience on their own. Whereas I would argue that institutions of higher education such as STEM support programs can play a really critical role in thinking about how we're supporting students in building and rebuilding some of those networks. Mm -hmm. I also wanted to ask you personally as you're doing this work and continuing your scholarly endeavors, is there something that you've learned from doing this analysis and taking the intersectional approach and focusing on these counter stories in the way that you did? Are you taking that forward with you in how you're approaching your future research? Of course, yep. So I think that we're always constantly learning, right? As researchers, it's kind of a lifelong learning experience. And one of the things that really is a big um, takeaway for me in terms of, of learning through all of this is this idea that employing intersectional analyses is very complex. You can't always kind of capture everything, right? Even yeah. though it's, it's, it lends its, it's a framework that lends itself to, to allowing you to kind of sink into a more deeper analysis and kind of capture more variation in lived experiences. But one thing that I would, that I have learned is this idea about kind of thinking about Tracy's experience, about how she kind of engaged with different kinds of discourses in different spaces. Mm -hmm. You never stop being who you are in terms of your different dimensions of your social identities. But what's interesting is that the interpersonal interactions that you have and in the institutional spaces in which you kind of navigate, the ways in which those um, interactions and institutional spaces might be kind of structured or will kind of vary the discourses that the, that an individual would engage with, right? Yeah. So you might notice that race was particularly more salient for Tracy in a predominantly white university because it's a racialized environment in that way, right? So when she kind of looked back on her experience, race wasn't as a significant piece to her mathematics experiences because she kind of said that in high school, we began to appreciate each other's differences more from cultural differences or ethnic differences because they're mainly predominantly 
uh, Latina in her high school. Whereas at the university, all of a sudden, those who identified as being Latina were kind of in a smaller group compared to the rest of the demographics at the university, right? So it was almost as if these narratives of Latinas not being good at mathematics was not necessarily there so much in her high school, but now when you kind of switch the ways in which this con this, the context is racialized, it begins to kind of allow you to kind of engage with other discourses. My guest is Luis Leva from Vanderbilt University, and I just have one last question that I want to ask, um, and this is a question inspired by my friend Aaron Brackenecki, who I went to grad school with back at Michigan State, but it's one I always like to ask to get a little bit of the personal side of uh, my guests' interests and hobbies. So, Luis, if you were not in math education, what could you imagine yourself doing as an alternative career? Um, that's a great question, um, and a very interesting one, and a fun one. Uh, so I'm <laughs> thinking that, I guess if I wasn't in mathematics education, um, one possibility is maybe continuing my, my dedication to um, STEM higher education and working with STEM support programs. But if I'm really kind of thinking of more about hobbies and kind of a fantasy kind of life, mm -hmm. um, I can kind of envision myself playing in a rock band and touring um, worldwide. Oh, oh, wow. Is this just purely fantastical, or do you actually have an instrument or singing that you do? I don't play an instrument. Um, I wish I did. You could still do punk rock or folk rock. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a big music enthusiast, so I'm a, I am a runner, so I, I enjoy running and I enjoy listening to music and oftentimes we'll share music with friends um, that I'm hearing while I'm on runs. But I've been listening to music ever since I can remember when I was a kid and it kind of fuels me each and every day. So I think that if it, in some other lifetime, if I wasn't um, in mathematics education, I think that would probably be rocking the stage somewhere. Yeah. It's interesting, too, that you specifically have the vision of touring and doing all the shows and going around, you know, rather than just creating the music or being in the studio or something like that. It's really about that full experience of going around the world and being up on stage in front of crowds and stuff. Yep, just like in education and as a researcher and as a teacher, you connect with your audiences. So the same way that we're always connecting, I guess in that fantasy life, I'd be connecting when we're on stage. Absolutely. Well, Luis, thanks so much for speaking with us, and I encourage everybody, again, to go and grab that article from the Journal of Urban Mathematics Education. And, Luis, have a great year. Oh, thank you so much, and thank you so much for the opportunity and having me. It was a pleasure being able to talk about the work with you today. for listening to the Math Ed Podcast. If you happen to be a teacher who is interested in a master's degree in math education, we have a great master's program here at the University of Missouri that is 100% online. Our program actually focuses on math education rather than generalist education or pure mathematics. And we personalize the timeline for every individual so you can finish right away in a year and a half or you can stretch it out over three or four years if you wish. The other good news is that we give everyone in the United States our Missouri in-state tuition rate. So it ends up being a very competitive price. If you want to know more, please visit online.missouri.edu. And we also have an online education specialist degree as well if you want to go beyond a master's degree.